Let's pray. Father, we anticipate glory. And not just eternally, but right here, right now, as we open your word and we enter a text that seems to have almost nothing to do with the Christian life. There's no direction for us in this text. And yet we can pull from it truth that can change in our lives and encourage our souls. So I pray that your word would do its work. It would challenge your people. It would fix our eyes on you. It would have us lift our heads to your beauty and majesty and grandeur and sovereignty and supremacy and your glory. That we would be like Moses on the mountain and just stunned by the brightness of your glory. Your word tells us that in having your word, we have something more sure. So we trust that as we open your Bible and read your words and hear your voice speak, that we lack nothing in your presence, that we enter into the fullness of your joy by opening your word as your spirit leads us. We pray that your spirit would act, that he would speak through me and he would listen through us and you would teach us. Exalt Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection to bring you great glory, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the remaining texts in Colossians, so we're in Colossians 4, and all of the remaining texts for the rest of the book are Paul's final greetings to the church, much of which is just information about who's who and who did what and how the Colossians should receive these people. There's very little about like instructions or directions or commands for Christian living. I mean, if you look back at previous chapters, you know, Paul says, put to death what's earthly in you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassion, kindness, humility. There's a lot of instruction and clarity about commands there. In this text, it's just information. Paul is relaying what's been going on, who he's with, and what they're, with, what they're doing with him. And there is a little instruction for the church, which we'll see here. But these last final greetings seem like when you read them, I mean, these, honestly, I come to these texts when I write these sermons and I'm like, maybe I could just like skip over and be like, yeah, so Paul's like, see you guys later and then just move on to the next book. But there's so much richness in every word of the Bible. And so I, I was going to do verses 7 through 18, just finish the whole last 11 or 12 verses or whatever it is all the way to the end. And I got through two verses and I was like, nope, that's a whole sermon. So there's so much richness here that we will see. And we'll, we'll, we're going to try to glean out of this the, 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 the beauty and the faithfulness of two men. And these two men are Onesimus and Tychicus, which, by the way, when we were having our kids for the first time, before we had any kids, Tychicus was at the top of my list of names I want to name my children. I love that. And then my cousin named his son Tychicus. I was like, come on, man. And then my other one was Maximus from Gladiator. But then I had another cousin literally name his child Maximus. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. All right, Dante it is. So <laughs> um, what we'll see here in verses 7 through 9 is that these two men, Onesimus and Tychicus, they're, these are guys whose lives reflect, genuinely reflect the teaching of Scripture. So what we get in this text is an example. And my hope is that as we examine what very little we know about these men and their lives, is that we would be encouraged to live like them. Because that's the hope here, and we'll get to that in a second, but that's the hope here, your encouragement. And what we see from them, from Onesimus and Tychicus, is a life of sacrificial and faithful service to God, to the church, and to Paul. Which is a great encouragement to us because many of us serve God without man's recognition or accolades. 
which is exactly what Paul affirms as faithfulness back in chapter 3, verse 23, where he said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So most of us don't get praised, don't get seen. There are people who come here on Saturdays and clean the entire church. No one sees it. They just do it quietly, faithfully, and joyfully. And that's not the only thing that happens here. Tons of people serving this body. We have a unique church. We got, I think it's somewhere around 70, 80, maybe 75%, we'll just say, of this body is serving actively. That's unheard of in the church. It's usually 20% does 80% of the work. And we have 80% doing, or maybe 70%, doing 100% of the work. That's pretty awesome. So that means, and, and I would assume that most of you didn't know that, except for maybe Christian had mentioned it before, but maybe you didn't know that. And the reason you don't know that is because there's so many people serving quietly and faithfully, without recognition, without praise, without accolades. And you could look at Lon as he leads worship and go, oh, Lon, thank you for serving the church so faithfully week after week. Oh, Pastor Christian, thank you for serving the church week after week and all the Bible studies you do and the teaching on Sunday morning. Oh, Pastor Mark, thank you for what you're doing. Oh, Brian, he's an elder. Oh, thank you, Brian, for all the service you do. Uh, uh, Drew, thank you for leading the youth group. And it's like, oh, there's about five guys leading the church. Five guys serving the church. That's not true. There's so many people doing things quietly. And so our sin nature, our flesh, really wants to be praised. Even if that's not your personality, your sinful flesh desires recognition, praise. Even, even if it's just like, I just, want, I just want to be appreciated. I don't need much. I just, just a thank you would do. And the Bible teaches us that's not what we serve for. We don't serve for thank yous from men. There are things that I watch people do. I've always made it my goal as a pastor that when I see people serving the church that I'm leading, that I thank them. And I think that's important because I want people to feel appreciated. And now, I mean, I'd say within the last couple years, I've kind of felt like maybe I shouldn't thank them. Like maybe, maybe I should enact the very thing Scripture teaches, which is do the work heartily, not for men, but to God instead of for my thank yous. I don't want you getting used to being like, well, Pastor Marco says thank you. What if I don't say thank you? Are you going to suddenly not want to do it? I hope not, right? So this is the heartbeat of one of these men, and then we'll see, that's, we'll see Onesimus and Tychicus' life reveal some really great biblical characteristics that we all need to become. In verses 7 through 9, Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful ministry, minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Do you hear that? That he may encourage your hearts. That is the aim of this text. The encouragement of your heart. There's no commands here. There's no direction here. There's no church. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to behave. This is how you have to function. Here's the order of church. He's just saying, I'm sending you men who will encourage your heart. In verse 9 he says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. So we have these two men mentioned here, Tychicus and Onesimus, as helpful brothers in Paul's ministry. Now, we'll start with Onesimus, which we see in verse 9, and then we'll go back to Tychicus in verses 7 and 8. Onesimus is one of the main characters in Paul's letter to Philemon, if not the main character in Paul's letter. The reason Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, the reason we have the book of Philemon in our Bibles is because Paul was writing this letter to Philemon and the letter was about this very man, Onesimus. Onesimus was an unbelieving slave to Philemon. So Philemon was the slave master, Onesimus was the slave, he was an unbeliever and he escaped slavery 
and ran away. And when he ran away, he ran into, by God's sovereign goodness to Onesimus, he runs into Paul, the great apostle Paul. And Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord. Onesimus became a believer, which is the reason for Paul's letter to Philemon, where Paul encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus back without treating him like an escaped slave, but instead to treat him as a brother in Christ. And Paul tells us nothing here about Onesimus other than he is our faithful and beloved brother, speaking to the genuineness of Onesimus' faith in Christ. And he also tells the Colossians in verse 9 that Onesimus is one of you. Just to clarify that if the word is out that Onesimus is an escaped slave, he's no longer to be considered that way, but instead to be considered a brother in Christ, so treat him as such. So there's this wonderful spiritual encouragement in Onesimus' story. There's many, actually, but we're going to hit just one, and this, this encouragement is that regardless of your past, the Lord can change your future. Regardless of what you've been through, no matter how bad your sins were, no matter what your life was like in the past, the Lord can change your future. Not only can he change your eternity, but you can change the temporal nature of your current life, which is what Jesus had done in Onesimus' life. And so there's this reality that Onesimus has this, there's this, I wouldn't call it a fear, but maybe a concern from Paul as he writes his letter to Philemon, because Paul says to Philemon, I could demand of you, Philemon, that you receive Onesimus as a brother, not as a slave, but I'm not going to. I'm on a request, because your heart should be like my heart, and I shouldn't have to demand it. And so Paul expects not Philemon to obey Paul, but Philemon to be led by the Spirit, filled with the gospel and the grace and the goodness of God and recognizing that Onesimus is a brother, meaning he expects Philemon to forget Onesimus' past. And this is the, the foundation in Luke 4.24 when Jesus said, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. One of the reasons this is true is because your hometown is where you grew up where everybody remembers your past. If you went back to my elementary school teachers and said, what do you think of Mark Barlow? They'd be like, oh, let me tell you. And then I'm not going to tell you what they'd say because it's not nice. But I would imagine that's how they remember me. I was in trouble all the time. So those who know you from your hometown or from your past, they still carry with them the thoughts of your immature escapades, making it difficult for them to accept you now as a mature follower of Christ or as a preacher or as a prophet, as Jesus says. That is the nature of sinful man, that it's hard for us to accept that people can change. It's hard for us to accept that others have been changed. It's hard for us to accept that we've been changed. We dwell on our past sins often. But the only change that really matters is the change that the Lord does. And so therefore, prophets, and you could apply this to any believer, any believer struggles to be accepted in their hometowns because of their past, because they are known from before, because they're remembered as childish, or they're remembered as immature, or they're remembered for their sins. There's some sort of hindrance about their past that prevents them from making progress as an adult in the place where they're remembered. And yet Jesus says that of himself, and he had no sinful past. And yet they said of him in Matthew 13, 55 through 58, they're talking about Jesus, and they said, where did this man get, his, get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? You hear what they're getting at? We know this guy. Who is it? Where did he get this wisdom from? We saw him grow up. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now listen to how he responds. 
And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. So it is difficult for others to put your past behind them. And in doing so, they may not believe. Yet Paul counters that kind of thinking with Onesimus. He counters that kind of thinking with the power of the gospel to transform lives and encourages the Colossian believers to put the past behind them, encourages Philemon to put the past behind him as a way to uphold the belief of the transformative power of the gospel which is seen in Onesimus' life. Now the encouragement for us is that though some of us have an ugly past, the beauty is we now get to exalt not our past, but we get to exalt the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the work of the Lord who, Ephesians 2.10, created us in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's nothing in that text about he has created us in Christ Jesus so that we would look to our past and constantly remember how terrible we are. But that he paves a path forward and that path is a path of righteousness and good works that God has created for you to walk in. So there's no sense of dwelling on our past sins when God has conquered our sin in Christ and paved a path of righteousness for us to walk in as we walk confidently in God's gracious forgiveness of our sins. In Micah 7.19, he says, He will again, that's God will again, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And we see a similar reality in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Just, just, just listen to those words. I'm going to say them again. Just think about the incredible amount of love, grace, and mercy that is required to think about someone like this. He does not deal with us according to our sins. I remember when I lived in Montana and I was preaching. So I was a youth pastor, so I didn't get to preach as often as I wanted. There was a Sunday when I was preaching, and I woke up that morning, and I was overwhelmed with my sin, to the point where I felt like I couldn't preach. I was like, oh my goodness, Lord, this is going to have to be you, because I am disgusting. Like, I just, the thoughts that were going through my head, the sin, I mean, it wasn't like disqualifying sin, it was just like, I just felt the weight of my flesh on me and I was like, I'm just, how can I go preach your word when I know who I really am? And so I opened up my Bible. I'm like, I need God to speak to me. It was right before the sermon started and I opened to the Psalms and I opened right to this text and I just started reading it and it said, he does not deal with us according to our sins. I was like, okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> Shut my Bible and I was like, praise you, praise you, Lord. Like, and I think I even started my sermon explaining what God was doing there because the forgiveness that he offers is, is so much more pure and rich and real than our experience with forgiving others. And yet God knows everything. He knows the depths of your sin and still forgives. We don't know the depths of each other's sin and we struggle to forgive. We know less and have a hard time forgiving. God knows it all and forgives completely. Well, it goes on in Psalm 103 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. a wonderful grace and richness of God's mercy. If God does not deal with us according to our sins, but forgives us, why then would we deal with ourselves according to our sins? 
But that kind of leaves us wondering that though he removes our sins and he casts our sins into the sea of forgiveness, doesn't God still remember our sins? Like, forgive, but don't forget, right? That's what you hear Christians say. We forgive, but we don't forget. First of all, that's not a Bible verse. And not only is it not a Bible verse, it's not an idea that's portrayed in the Bible. Instead, we find verses like Isaiah 43, 25, where God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Obviously, God does not suddenly not know something right? Like, or, or suddenly forget something. Because we know that God's all-knowing. So we know that even though he says, I don't remember your sins, we, he, we do know that he actually like, remembers them. He's an all-knowing God. But that truth that God still knows them is what magnifies the beauty of God's grace and mercy to tell us that he will not remember our sins. An all-knowing God doesn't forget anything, but in His sovereign grace, He chooses to forget your sins. He knows them, but He forgets them on purpose, as if they are not known and cannot be recalled or remembered. That is the power of Christ's blood. That it is so purely sanctifying and it is so clearly appeasing of God's wrath toward us that God forgets your sin. Meaning his son's righteousness is greater than your wickedness. And so much greater is God's, so much greater is Jesus' righteousness than your sin that God can't see your sin through the righteousness of Christ that you wear. And Paul says, in Colossians, chapter 2, verse 6, So, walk in Him. Like, that's the conclusion. If your sins are forgiven and you've been shrouded in the righteousness of Christ and God forgets your sins because He doesn't see you as a sinful person, He knows of your sin, He knows of the sins you still commit, but He sees you as the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, Paul says, walk that way, live that way. You have his righteousness, you can use it, live in it, act it out, walk in Christ-likeness, live in the, do the righteous thing, outdo one another in good works, that's what we're commanded. Do not grow weary in doing, grow, in doing good works, that's Galatians 6. We, we have everything available to us, including the forgetfulness of our former selves, to live in the perfection of Jesus Christ. We won't live out perfection all, at all times, but that's part of the process of spiritual growth, is when imperfections rise up, we don't go, oh, I'm imperfect. We go, oh, that imperfection should crush my soul and bring to remembrance the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive me that the blood of Christ cleanses me from that sin. And now with the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus, I can conquer that disobedience and live in righteousness. The only remembrance that our former sins should be given is that when we think of them, we're reminded of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. I remember going to my pastor once about years ago before I, became, before I was a pastor. He was sitting in a Culver's, met him at Culver's, sat down next to him. I was just like, Bleh. he's like, what's wrong? I said, how can you keep going in life as a Christian when you're so aware of how wicked you are? Like, my sin just destroys me. Like I'm just, I love God, I love Jesus, I want to live in righteousness, I just, so, how can I move on when all I can think about is how sinful I am? And he goes, the whole purpose of your sin still existing is to remind you that he conquered it. To remind you of his grace. And that in his grace, you can conquer it. 
Not because you can conquer, but because he already has conquered it. We just need to walk in it. If your past makes you cringe, and it should. Oh man, did that ever happen to you guys? <laughs> you ever think about something you did 10 years ago and you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> or you're like, oh, the person probably, that other person probably thinks about me doing that really stupid thing every day, every second of every day, all the time. And then if you went to that person and said, do you remember when I did that? They'd be like, no, but now I do. Thanks for reminding me. People don't think about you. They just don't. No one's thinking about your past. I mean, people aren't remembering the things you did to them, typically. Maybe some things, but not everything. And we dwell heavily on our past sins and the things that we did. And I'm saying, if your past makes you cringe, if you're like, oh, I can't believe that's what I was like, that's a good thing. You know what that means? It means you've grown. That you think that that behavior was not okay. That's good. That's a good start. And when we dwell, when we dwell in the agony over our former sins, we are not dwelling in joy of God's forgiveness. The attention we give our current sins should weigh heavy on us. I'm not saying you should be... Do not hear today. Anything that you hear today, do not be... I don't want you to hear that sin isn't a big deal. Because Jesus makes sin a huge deal. He makes sin such a big deal that you die and suffer eternal separation and eternal death. That's how serious sin is. And even as believers, we should take our sin seriously. But the attention we give our current sin Though it should weigh heavy on us, it should cause us to think like David in Psalm 51, where we are repentant and broken over our sin, and we, in recognition of our sin, the gospel of Jesus Christ bursts forth into the front of our mind and into our hearts, into our emotion and our thoughts. And as, as God's answer to your sin, in which we then marvel and rejoice and praise God for his merciful work, for us in Christ, instead of anxiously dwelling on our sins, our former sins, which act, it is itself an activity of sin, to dwell on your former sins and cause anxiety in your heart, that's sin to do that because it's not focusing on the gospel or God's grace, it's focusing on who you are no longer. So, as we think about who we were, as we think about who others were, or maybe are, we remember the gospel, and we declare, like Paul expects of Philemon, we declare the power of the transformation of God's gospel in Jesus Christ to change lives, and we treat each other like Christ would treat us. We treat each other like we would treat Christ. Now, the other man mentioned in these verses is Tychicus, whom Paul says in verse 7, will tell you all about my activities. So, Tychicus serves the Lord by serving Paul. And Paul gives Tychicus a similar vouch as he gave Onesimus by saying of him in verse 7, he is a beloved brother and a faithful servant. I'm sorry. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. So notice the three ways that Paul identifies Tychicus's character. And we'll look at these three. One, he's a beloved brother, meaning he was greatly loved by Paul and by the churches, which is a great feat to accomplish because there are world leaders and politicians and prominent people in society that live their entire lives unable to achieve being loved by the people. So there is a brotherhood that is accomplished in the body of Christ that even the best, most well-known and recognized people in the world cannot achieve without the unifying work and power of the Holy Spirit 
to create love between people who are actually born into flesh that hates God and each other. That is the power of the Holy Spirit to take people who hate each other and hate God and turn them into people who love God and love each other and are united and unified in purpose and in mission and in grace and in love and in forgiveness. The second characteristic of Tychicus is that he is a faithful minister. Tychicus is only mentioned five times in Scripture, four of which are in Paul's letters, and then once by Luke in Acts 20. And from those texts, we can gather a little bit about Tychicus's life and his ministry to Paul as his service to Christ and his service to the church. So, Tychicus received Christ while in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major city in the province of Asia Minor where Tychicus lived. So Tychicus lives in Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus. He likely gets saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which means that Tychicus also witnessed the riot against Paul in Ephesus in Acts 19 which would have been Tychicus's first witness of Paul's many trials and tribulations and sufferings for the gospel. Later, Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem while he's with Tychicus, and yet his devotion to Christ and to the gospel and to Paul did not waver at all. And Tychicus, along with others, would remain faithful to Paul through many of his hardships, which is why Paul calls him a faithful minister. He never leaves his side. He endures everything with him. And Tychicus was with Paul when he was arrested and imprisoned in Caesarea, and he witnessed Paul's gospel defense in the presence of kings and governors, as well as being on voyage to Rome with Paul that ended in shipwreck. Meaning, Tychicus witnessed and believed what Paul preached to the Galatians In Acts 14.22, which says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul's tribulations were many. And he describes them in 2 Corinthians 11.23-27. Paul says of himself that he has far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 39 lashes. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Can you imagine the way that they would lash you? They'd lash your back and they'd beat you with rods. What would happen is your skin would rip open, literally just like gouges of flesh, just completely open, probably would get infected, and I'm not going to describe how gross that gets. You can imagine how gross that would start to get. And then they would heal, and the wounds were so gapingly terrible and huge that they would heal in these big, thick wounds that puff out and then sink back in, and then the back gets tight. And then those wounds are reopened again when Paul gets lashed again and again and again and again to the point where Paul's back was probably very tight and extreme, extreme discomfort for a human being. Add to that the countless beatings he took with rods and not with those cattails that were whips with shards of glass on them and stone that would rip your flesh open like Christ suffered through. And you think about how, how he, he goes through those things and continues to serve. Like, and he'll tell us here, once I was stoned. That's the next part. Once I was stoned. He was stoned in Lystra. When he brought the gospel to the Galatians in Lystra, and they stoned Paul nearly to death. They literally thought his body was dead, so they dragged him outside the city walls and left him there to die. The apostles came to him. Paul wakes up, and he's like, huh, oh, and, you know, like I've preached this before. I taught this in, in our life group. And I'm sure that the apostles are like, hey, Paul, you know, you should probably go to a hospital. And Paul's like, nope, we got to go to the Derby. They need the gospel too. And then when we're done at Derby, we got to come back to Leicester and encourage the believers who are here. 
There are Christians who can't come to church because their back is sore. Or because they had a long Saturday night and they're tired. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, meaning he was probably naked most of the time, or not most of the time, some of the time. And apart from other things, meaning there's other things he's not putting in this list, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a righteous anxiety, by the way. Through all of this, Tychicus never left Paul's side. Never abandoned him as Peter did Jesus at his crucifixion. Because Tychicus' faithfulness to God's kingdom, despite all the sufferings he witnessed with Paul, some of which he likely endured himself, Paul sends Tychicus back to Asia to do two things. One, to deliver his letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon concerning Onesimus. And the second thing Tychicus was to do to the churches in Asia was to tell all of them what Paul was doing and all that had gone on for the sake of the gospel. So in all of Tychicus's faithfulness to Paul and to the gospel and to the church, he doesn't write any letters for the church. Tychicus doesn't do anything great or grand. doesn't write letters. He's not, some, he's not known as some like, great orator. He leaves no stories of great adventures with the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? The stories of Tychicus and the adventures of the Apostle Paul, how great those stories would be. God's like, no, it's not his role. Instead, he is simply a rather unknown errand boy. An unknown errand boy. God reserved no great fame or glory for Tychicus in this life. Instead, he's like a pencil, he's like a dime a dozen. Useful, but Virtually unnoticed. An instrument used by God to advance his gospel without recognition. He is known only as a servant, which we might think is like minimal and lowly and not that important. Oh, he's just a servant, just like everyone else. But here's the thing. Servant is the same position that even Jesus gave to himself. And therefore, it's a glorious and beautiful thing to be an unknown servant of the Lord. And that is the third description of Tychicus's character in verse 7. Paul calls him a fellow servant in the Lord. This term expresses equality between Paul and Tychicus. Fellow servant, meaning equal servant in the Lord, because the Lord makes us all equal in Him. Yes, some of us have different roles, and some of our roles might be more what we would call prominent or more noticeable. I would imagine that many of you hear your pastors or preachers' voices more during a week than the other people in the church because we have a more prominent role in your life. But no pastor or preacher or elder or leader has an, a higher footing in the Lord than you if you're in Christ. We are fellow servants to the Lord, we all have different roles. Some of them are more seen than others. Some of them are completely unseen. And some of them are somewhere in between. And though Paul shares with the churches his many trials and tribulations and his sufferings, he gives Tychicus this equal footing in the kingdom of God because of Tychicus's great faithfulness and remaining steadfast faithfulness to Jesus, to Paul and to the church. And Paul gives him this equality because Paul calls himself a servant as well, just like Jesus called himself a servant. In most of Paul's letters, he starts off his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle. But in a couple letters, Romans, Philippians, and Titus, he says, Paul, a servant. And that 
Greek word doulos for servant really means slave. So it is, it is as if Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, do not consider me greater than Tychicus, who is bringing you my letters. Though he is serving me, we are both servants to the Lord, so treat him as you would treat me, and treat us as you would treat the Lord. And there's this amazing encouragement for us to glean from what little we know about Tychicus's life. And that is This encouragement is that we don't know much about his life. That's the encouragement, that we don't know. And yet he does great things that are unseen. Without Tychicus, we don't have Ephesians, Colossians, or Philemon in our Bible. Yet almost none of us know about his work to put these letters into circulation so that they would eventually end up in your hands in Osceola, Wisconsin 2,000 years later. Thank you, Lord, for using Tychicus to put these letters in circulation so we could preach them and teach them and know you better. What a great reality. What a huge encouragement. Who knows what you are doing for the Lord today in private, in secret, in quiet, unseen, unrecognized, that God is going to use to bring people to faith or to bring him glory. This is why he says back in 323, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Because we know that the Lord, from the Lord, will receive an inheritance. We have to trust. We have to trust him that we don't need to be recognized. We don't need to be praised. We don't need to be seen. We don't need to be great. We just need to be faithful. That's it. That's your calling, faithfulness to Jesus. That is the whole entire purpose of your life, faithfulness to Jesus. And faithfulness to Jesus means sacrificial living, Romans 12, 1 through 2. The transformed life, the life that's transformed by Christ becomes a sacrificial life where your entire life becomes a form of sacrificial worship to God. That's your offering. When you look at the Old Testament, what did they do? They literally brought offerings, animals, and killed them and slaughtered them and offered them to the Lord. And now those are no longer needed because Christ became our offering. He became the sacrifice on our behalf. And now that he has sacrificed himself for us, we have Christ in us. We are like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of, the, of Christ, the spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit in us so that we can live like Christ. And Christ was sacrificial and faithful and obedient and righteous. That's who you are. And that's who you're supposed to be. That is our whole purpose of our existence, is to live a faithful life to Jesus Christ. And the most faithful life to Jesus Christ is the most sacrificial life to Jesus Christ. Because, and, and the reason I say sacrificial is I'm not saying everybody give up everything you have right now. That's the only way God will be glorified in your life. That's not what I'm saying, unless he's telling you to do that. What I'm saying is it will cost you to be faithful It will cost you to obey. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be in his word because you have to know how to follow him. And the only way to know how to follow him is to be in his word. And if you're in the word and you're following him, it's hard to obey the Bible. It's hard to do the things that scripture tells you to do. Do you know how hard it is to sit across, to, to, to spend five years in serving a church and get to know somebody and love them deeply, love them deeply and pray for them and teach them and serve them and, and, and devote my life to them and then they choose sin instead of righteousness and then I sit down with them and I go, listen, what you're doing is sin and they go, no it's not, I'm not going to change and I have to then obey God's word. You know how hard that is to sit across this seat from someone whom I love deeply and have given my life, given so much of my time for, and then all of a sudden they're like, I refuse to obey, and now I am put in a position where I have to obey the Lord and and act church discipline on their unrepentant sin to somebody whom I love and call friend. That friendship does not continue. It never has. Not in my experience. That's hard. That's very hard to do. That I had to sacrifice, sacrifice a friend to obey the Lord. 
as an expression of not only loving God, but loving them by obeying his word. Because church discipline is always about restoration of their soul to Christ. And that's how the church should love. And so what I'm saying is if you want to live a faithful life to Christ, if you want to be like Tychicus, whether you're recognized or not, it is all about faithfully serving the Lord and faithfulness will cost you and that will be your sacrifice. It will be hard, it will be a challenge, but it will be, Romans 8.18, worth it. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That is one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, Romans 8.18. Kent Hughes says, he's an, an author. It's a simple statement, simple quote. Not that profound, but significantly powerful. There is greatness in the smallest things done for Christ. I could preach a gospel from this, I could preach a sermon from this pulpit without faith. And Romans 14.23 says that's sin. And you, after that sermon could see a little scrap of trash on the floor and pick it up with the mindset that no one's seeing this, but this is the right thing to do, to, 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 to sacrifice whatever energy and time it takes me to bend over, pick it up, and throw it away to serve my church. It's a small thing. It seem, it's almost a meaningless thing, but you can do that in faith, and that would be greater than me preaching a sermon without faith. The greatest, there is greatness in the smallest things done for Christ. We tend to separate our lives, right? We tend to separate our lives into like compartments. We put our lives in like we've got church life, right? Oh, it's Sunday, we gotta go to church, church lifetime. And then after church, it's like, woo, back to regular life. So we got church life and regular life. Church life is like, we go to church on Sundays, we go to church on Wednesday nights, I'm in also in a life group and some Bible studies, you know, and that's like my church life. And that, that's a lot. That's already a lot. It's like a couple Bible studies a week, plus church, plus whatever other things you're doing. It's like, and I'm serving the church. I'm not only getting fed in the Bible studies and the sermon, but I'm also giving my time and I'm giving my money. I do a lot for the church. And so we, we tend to think, I need, a, I need like a break from that a little bit and I need my regular life. Yet the characters in Scripture did not have a separation in their daily living from their service to the gospel. They didn't have a church life and then other parts of life that didn't exist in the New Testament in the first century. They didn't have church life and other parts of life. Their church life was their life because Jesus and his body is their life. Their lives were not about their job. Their life was not about their entertainment. Their life was not about their families or tending to their possessions. It wasn't about their houses. It wasn't about their transportation. But instead, their life was Christ to the point where most of them died for him. Regardless of what they were doing or where they were doing it, everything was to serve Christ fully and completely, even unto death. And they express that Christ-centered life through the church. The church is the expression of living your life for Christ and with Christ. I don't know why, but we do this. I do this too. It's like innate in my sinful flesh to do it without even knowing that I'm doing it. And I think we all do it to some extent and we need to stop doing it. And the thing that I'm talking about is for some reason we decided that we should cut off Jesus' head and just talk to him. As if his arms and legs and body mean nothing. He's the head of his whole body. We're the body. We express our faithfulness and our devotion and our life to Christ through the church. If Christ is everything in your life, which he ought to be, and if he's not, then you're not a believer. We ought to, our entire life ought to be about Jesus. Why do I go to work? To serve Christ. 
Why do I get paid? To serve Christ, to give to Christ. Why do I serve the church? To serve Christ. Why do I love my family? To serve Christ. Why do I raise my kids by teaching the Bible every day? To serve Christ. Why do I, why do I have a boat and take it out on the weekends? To serve Christ. Why do I have multiple vehicles? To serve Christ. If, if any of that stuff doesn't serve Christ, it's sin. Everything is to serve Christ. Christ. And the way in which we serve Christ is through his body. We have to stop cutting off the head and putting it on our table and going, hi, Jesus. And he goes, hey, what about my body? And, and, we're, and we're like, well, it's, I don't need the body to love you. And then he goes, fine, give me a hug. And you're like, uh, because he has no body. Like we have no way to express affection for him without the body. One of the best ways to love Christ is to love you. Like, high fives and hugs and handshakes. Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Do we need to bring that back? Do we need to bring back the holy kiss so that you guys start feeling affection for one another? Can we at least do some holy hugs? They need to be appropriate. Okay. All right, just let's not do that yet. Let me think through that a little bit. Okay, so the point is that they express Christ-centered life through the church, meeting together daily, reading scripture together daily, praying together daily, sacrificing daily, giving their money and possessions daily, and expressing all the Christ-like characteristics toward each other daily, because they're in each other's lives daily so like when I moved here seven years ago this church we couldn't use this building at all we only met on Sundays we had no ministries whatsoever other than like an occasional meeting here or there all we had was Sunday morning and what I saw in that was the the product I saw from that was there was no there was no body. There was no camaraderie or togetherness or unity or love and affection for one another. I mean, I mean, there were relationships that were certainly built, and people would say they love each other. I'm not saying it was like a dead church by any means like that, but, but like, there was just no way for us to express what it means to be in Christ together, and so we struggled, and, which is why we got rid of the daycare. So we could have a home in which we could celebrate Christ together more frequently, and now we're at a place where we have... Bible studies Sunday mornings, church on Sunday morning, youth group Sunday night, worship, praise and worship uh, night tonight, and then uh, Tuesday morning, women's Bible study, Wednesday night, family discipleship, uh, Friday morning, men's Bible study, we've got life groups Thursday night and Friday night, we've got Saturday sisters that gets together on Saturday mornings, we have tons of opportunities to be together and to be in the Word together and to celebrate Christ together, which is a huge reason why we're having this worship night tonight. We're not having a worship night just to have something to do. I don't want to waste your time. I'm saying, guys, we've been sitting in the Word all these days. Sunday morning twice, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Monday's my day off, and if it wasn't my day off, we'd probably have a Bible study on Monday too. In fact, Christian does have this particular Bible study with one person that he does on Monday. So really, we're constantly teaching the Bible every day of the week, and there's a reason we do that. We want you to grow in Christ, and we love, love your faithfulness to the Word and to those ministries that you guys sacrifice and give up your time to be a part of the body that frequently. I can't expect that from you, but if God is causing you to do that, what a beautiful, glorious thing, and I'm so grateful that he is doing it, and now I'm like, we need, we've been just building up all this knowledge and information in your brains and in your hearts, and I'm watching your lives be transformed, and I'm seeing people get filled with joy in the Lord, and I'm like, let's show up on Sunday night, October 2nd at 5 p.m., and let's just burst with joy, and sing, and praise, and worship him, and just like we're literally told just a few uh, verses earlier that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
that's a beautiful thing that we're doing and all these Bible studies and all these services and all these activities that we got going on where you get to be in the word we are letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and listen to how he continues from there singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God that's the product of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly is that you gotta shout and you gotta sing and you gotta praise because if you're in the word you will see the worth and the value and the glory of God in Christ and in you and in the church and you'll want to get together and shout your songs of joy. Do not miss tonight. Not because I'm, I'm not commanding you to do anything. I'm like Paul writing his letter to Philemon. I shouldn't have to command you. This should be the joy of your life. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said about his father, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is the motto of all who desire to live a godly life, regardless of what it may cost you. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you some freedom. The Packers play at 3.30 today. You're going to come to music. You're going to, it's going to cost you the second half. Okay? I love the Packers, but not like Jesus, right? And we're going to show up and we're going to sing. We should all strive to be examples of Christ in the way that Tychicus was an example of Christ, to give ourselves to the will of God, to serve his kingdom and his church without recognition, and oftentimes to do so while facing revile and being despised by others, being hated by people, and being trash-talked behind your back. That happens when you choose obedience. But that's the cost of living for Christ. And as we sacrifice, so we suffer. And that is the cost of serving our King and our Lord Jesus. But the reward, the reward, oh, the reward for your faithfulness, as Tychicus was faithful, is not notoriety or praise in this life, but rather an eternal reward and inheritance earned by Jesus for us in which we will dwell joyfully forever. I hope that encourages your service to the church. I hope that encourages your service to Jesus' body. I hope that encourages your service to Christ himself. I hope that encourages you to endure through trials and tribulations and sufferings. I hope that encourages you to, to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. I hope that encourages you to sacrifice your, your life for Christ's sake and for his exaltation and God's glory, if that is what he calls you to. And I hope that your encouragement serves the encouragement of others. This is not a sermon about commanding you what to do. This is a sermon about encouraging your hearts about who God has made you to be in Christ should allow us to look at our former sins and go, I'm not him or her anymore. God calls me saint, brother, Son, beloved, child, faithful is what he calls me. Not because I'm faithful, faithful, but because he has paved the, the, the path of faithfulness and makes me walk it. He's faithful. And I hope that all those encouragements that you feel and experience can only be expressed when we do not separate church life from regular life. As your church life is your life and it will be eternally. We are practicing for eternity. So it's time to prioritize the body of Christ and ultimately to make our highest priority the head of the body, Jesus. Let's pray. God, by your grace and grace alone, Father, we come to you. We can call you Abba, Father, Daddy, Dad, Lord, God, Sovereign Ruler, Supreme King of all things. You reign over all things. You're sovereign over all things. You lead us everywhere. All of our righteousness is your work. Our obedience is is your spirit. So we must do only one thing and that is submit and fall at your feet and 
praise you for your grace and mercy, for making us like Christ. And then ask that you would raise us up and help us walk like him. It's going to cost us, Lord. We know that. We know it costs to serve you. But the reward is out of this world. Help us to be a church that devotes ourselves to your body, to each other, and ultimately to you. We can't do this without you, and we can't do this without each other. Remind us of who we are, not who we were. And remind us of your grace and mercy, and let us sing to you with nothing but praise and joy. Joy that is filled from the bottom of our feet to the top of our heads and cannot be restrained any longer but must be poured out in praise and worship because you alone are the one who brings great joy. At your right hand is joy and in your presence are pleasures forevermore. Who are we but people made to exalt your name and glorify Jesus Give us hearts that want to worship you, not just with our voices this morning and not just with our voices tonight, but with our lives every day. Increase our faith to make that possible. In Jesus' name alone can we pray these things. Amen.